Good morning, Chapel family. Our scripture today will be from Isaiah chapter 45, reading verses 7 through 9. This is the context of how God uses even Cyrus, an ungodly man who didn't know him, in a world that's kind of crazy. God still is in charge. Isaiah 45, starting verse 7. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Drip down, O heavens, from above. Let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up and salvation bear fruit. And righteousness spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker, an earthen vessel, vessel among the vessels of earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the things you are making say, he has no hands. And looking back at verse 6 even also too, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun, there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for how marvelous it is to realize that there's no one beside you. And Father, we think of this passage and in many passages in scripture and history past, how you are sovereign, you are in control. We can rest in your hands. Father, I'm so thankful you are sovereign and you are good. Father, even in our times today, we just rest on that, that you are good and you are sovereign. Father, help us to just be faithful to you. Help us to be faithful in your word. Help us to be faithful in our walk with you. Help us to be faithful in our witness with you. Just help us to live a life that might glorify you and bear fruit among others. Thank you again, God. We're so, so thankful that there is no other God beside you. And we ask it in Christ's name. Well, it's always fantastic to be back. I'm so thankful for the opportunity uh, to go out and be a blessing as I was gone at a conference last week. But I can tell you this, that every time I'm away from my own church family, I always think there is no place like being home with your home church family. And uh, so if you would this morning, uh, turn to Joshua chapter 10, which is where we're going to be in a uh, sermon this morning that we are going to be talking about what has become known in the, in the battle of, the, of the, the conquest of Canaan as the battle of the long day. Uh, for those at the sound system, just so that you know you're going to have to help me uh, flip through the slides this morning. Uh, I don't have my clicker on me, uh, an oversight. I reached in my pocket, so I will let you know when uh, to do that, but you'll, you can help me with that. But we're going to be talking about the battle of the long day. And I think you probably can resonate. You're thinking to yourself, like, I have had a battle of a long day this week at some point. I've had maybe multiple battles of long days. Well, I can tell you it was not like this day. It was not like the day that Joshua commanded the sun and the moon to stand still in a way that the God who created all of the universe listened to Joshua and stopped it for the sake of the conquest. It is so critical for us as we continue to understand 
our lives in reference to this sovereign, holy God, that one of the things that we're going to be confronted with is the reality that God is always working, giving us the amount of time that we need to accomplish the very things that he's called us to accomplish. Even at a moment in the life of this story in, in Joshua chapter 10, you see the battle, as we will see, waning and the armies wondering, how will we defeat them with the amount of day that is left? And you may be thinking something similar in your life. How can I do what God's called me with, to do with the time that he's been giving? It always seems like we need more of it. Do you notice that? That you will say to yourself, if only I had more time, I would do this or that or accomplish these things. But in reality, is that when God wants us to have the exact amount of time, which he has, night and day, I am so thankful for night. Don't you like sleep? Could you imagine worrying another uh, 11 to 12 hours? Maybe you don't get that much sleep. I don't get that much sleep. Uh, but worrying or even being discouraged or frustrated or dealing with things in a way, when you go to bed, at least for a certain portion, even if you're struggling, there's a point where you are comatose. You do not understand what's going on and who is holding you in their hand. God. In all of your rest and your peace, he holds all things and the world together in this kind of way. We understand that God uh, works on our behalf in this way. Let me remind us as we're thinking about Joshua chapter 10 to remind us because this is a continuation story. Nine chapters, nine and 10 go together. And it's interesting to me that in the battle of the conquest, just uh, tuck this away in your mind. You know, the very first battle, they come to Jericho. They do everything God wanted them to do. Then they come and the walls fall down. Then the next battle of Ai doesn't start out so well, but then it ends well. And then you come to Gibeah, and then Joshua makes, and the leaders make a hasty decision. Doesn't start out so well, but it ends really well. Do you realize it's kind of like a cyclical pattern of so many of our lives? In so many ways, we often start in the wrong place, and yet God in his grace and his mercy brings us to the spot that he wants us to be, as long as our heart is sensitive to responding in the right and accurate and godly and holy ways. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden, just because we make one wrong turn and one wrong mistake, that God is somehow done with keeping his promises to you and I. He is so sovereign and so kind and gracious that in the midst of it, he is always working for his glory and for our good on a regular basis. Now in Joshua chapter 9, we notice this in, in verse number 1. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the low land and all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, they heard what was going on. And they gathered together to fight against Joshua and Israel. And now you have the story of the Gibeonite deception. Well, these kings had not forgotten it. And yet now there is a new twist to the story. Now, because they knew that Gibeah would no longer be in alliance with them, and they had heard, and they're upset, because Gibeah, by the way, was a city, if you read the, all of chapter 10, it was a large city. It was larger than the city of Ai. It was even described in the text as a royal city, a city filled with warriors that were unlike many of the other towns. 
And so when they heard that Gibeah had now formed a treaty and an alliance with Israel, they were a little nervous. So before fighting Israel, they wanted to make sure that they rallied all the kingdoms that surrounded in the southern, uh, surrounded them in the southern coalition. And that's what we begin to start seeing in Joshua chapter 10. Now before we get there, I want, us, I want to remind us of this main idea in this particular perspective that I want us to gravitate towards as we think about this story. That God is our refuge uh, and he's, is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble? Would you do this? Keep your finger in Joshua 10 and turn over to Psalm chapter 46 for just a moment. Psalm chapter 46. Well, let your fingers use your Bible this morning and turn there because I, I want you to see this. There is a constant reminder to the life of the people of Israel that in the midst of calamity and destruction and uncertainty, that there is a God who remains above it all, constant and sure, who, can, who we can place our refuge. Notice in Psalm 46. I love how, we, how the psalmist declares this. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariot with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as we begin to hear these stories in the midst of the historical context of the conquest, never forget whatever circumstance that you are going through. I don't know where you're at this morning and what God has called you to have to, to endure, but I can, note, I, can, I can greatly appoint you to this text of Scripture that God will be your refuge in the middle of that storm. It might be a loss of a loved one. It might be the severing of a relationship. It might be just the longing to, to, to be where someplace else that you know you would rather be, enjoying uh, other things you'd rather enjoy. It might be your own marriage. It might be something going on with your kids. It might be the loss of a job. But in every single circumstance you and I will ever face, it is, it is our duty as Christians to remind ourselves, as the text so often does, God is the only refuge and strength and, and very present help in our time of trouble. That's what the children of Israel were going into in the conquest. A land filled with perversion and trouble and pagan idolatry. And yet they knew that they must obey the Lord. They knew what happened to Achan when he had taken the things he wasn't supposed to take. They knew what happened at Ai when they, when they didn't do it the way God had called them to do it. 
And again, and again, and again in the life of the conquest, they were called to trust him. You and I are still living in a time where we have to trust him every single day of our life. There's never going to be a moment in your life, and you may think to yourself, I just can't wait. Uh, you know, I would just love to have one single day where I could just, you know, trust him perfectly. It's coming. It's later. But you've got to model what it's going to be like then, here and now. That's the duty. If we lose sight of that, you don't run to the refuge and you don't run to the fortress who is your protection. You don't rest in the sovereignty of God. You don't look to his justice. You don't look to obey. You look to whine, just like I do at times. You look to complain. We look to worry. We look to being discouraged. And yet our duty is to remind ourselves this God has a plan. Now notice the plan that he continues to give the people of Israel in Joshua 10. He says in the very first uh, section, he demonstrates the alliance that was now forming. In Joshua 10 verses 3 through 5, you, you notice this, this whole entire uh, this story unfolding. And as soon as, it says, as soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua captured Ai and devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its kings as he had done to Jericho and its kings, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them. He feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than I, and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike down Gibeon. For it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel and the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. I want you to notice this, and I've put a map before you this morning just to help us calibrate on a, on a map an understanding of these particular kingdoms. Now, it is, it is so like the sovereign God who is the greatest military strategist of all time to go through the conquest and recognize that he's not going to spread troops too thin by trying to conquer all the land at once. He concentrates on various strongholds to begin with, which is why as they came over, right in the central area of the land of conquest, he splits the land in half. He takes Jericho to send a message that would then travel all throughout all of the other kingdoms in the land of Canaan. And notice, if you were to look, and you can look, don't turn there now in the back of your Bible, those unused maps that you never tend to use, uh, there are little places there. And you begin to notice a pattern. He's moving from Jericho to Ai. Well, guess who was next on the list? Well, Gibeah was next on the list. Gibeah says, we got to do something about this. Now, all the southern kingdoms and all the northern kingdoms do get word. They are coming and they are here to stay. And their God is with them. And that's what we're afraid of. They're not just afraid of the people. They're afraid of the people's God the God of heaven and earth, who can do wonders of which they had heard like no other God could do in their pagan land. 
A God who can dry up the waters of the Jordan and back it up all the way so that everybody hears they're coming and they just crossed over. They walked around a city and the walls fell down. God punishes even their own people when they don't do what's right. No one is left outside the gaze of a holy God. Even though God loves his people, he does not give his people a pass in order so that they could sin for a season. He always brings justice no matter who you are. Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, which is fascinating because I believe in the Old Testament, this is our first, uh, our first account of where uh, Jerusalem is even, uh, is even used in the Bible where we begin to understand now all of these kingdoms that were going on, we, we see, and the king of Jerusalem, Adonai Zedek, okay, which means just simply you have all these different names at different meanings, Lord of Righteousness. And, and so I don't think this pagan ruler was a Lord of Righteousness. I think that was part of the problem, which is why they were being wiped out, is that their reality was is there was no righteousness there. There was no right component. And so when he calls the alliance of these particular five kingdoms, he calls them to himself and they form this. Why? Now it's interesting to me because in the course of this alliance, they still have the impression in their minds that, well, we're not going against them yet, but we're going to make Gibeah pay. And we're going to destroy them and they were going to go after the people of Israel. They weren't just going to all of a sudden roll over and say, hey, uh, you know, it's not like they walked into town in the conquest and everybody was handing over the keys to their villa. Like, oh, here, you know, door number 5A on the right. You'll like it. I've been working on this for years. They were not happy about this, uh, this reality, and they had to come to the perspective, we're going to fight against these people, but what God wanted them to realize is that you are no match for me. And when my people do what I've called them to do, and they have the Lord on their side, the reason why there are no match for the people of God is because they are no match for the God of heaven. And you know what? Our culture is no different. So often you will see in our culture, on many different avenues of social media and all kinds of places elsewhere, throwing their fists in the face of God saying, you know what? You just don't get it. You don't know. The Bible's wrong. It's just a a group of men who wrote these things. And you cannot forever throw your fist in the face of God and say, how dare you do this? God will allow for righteousness. Now, this is all like a sovereign God because he doesn't have him defeat the northern kingdom yet. He allows the alliance to form. Now, this is kind of a gift if you would say, like, okay, should we fight one big battle or should we fight five to six other small battles and go back and retreat. Here in God's sovereign hand, he allows these nations to form alliances and then he destroys them all at once so that his people can say, all right, now you've got the southern half. Now go and finish the job. This is the kindness of God I want you to see. So recognize that when nations form alliances, that it's not outside the gaze of God as if all of a sudden it slipped his memory. Think, oh, I shouldn't have let that happen. God allows things to happen in in earth and time and space, even in our history today. 
because he wants to bring things to a conclusion of which he has an agenda. It's not our agenda, it's his agenda. And that agenda concludes with him and his son sitting, side, his son is going to sit at the throne of heaven and he will sit on the king of his throne of David forever. I mean, that is what he is trying to get across. Now, just to understand and see the alliance, now let's notice Joshua's response. Verse number six. And the men of Gibeah sent, Joshua, sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal saying, do not relax your hand from your servants. Now he's just using this poetic uh, phrase to simply say, you made, you shook hands on this. You made a deal with us that you would protect us. Don't allow your hand to go ungripped or be, remain relaxed because we need your help now. And he says, come up to us quickly and save us and help us. Notice all these imperatives. I think Joshua is getting the picture. This was an urgent need for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country and are gathered against us. And so Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people uh, of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. Wow. Here we have Joshua. Notice, as you look at this particular map, somehow the way that they would often uh, besiege cities is that all of these cities would come upon another one and they would surround it, which is why everyone outside the city would run to the fortifications, which, by the way, for some of you and perhaps for some of you who have been there, you go to Israel and see these cities that were sitting on top of a hill. That's because as it was conquered, it would be rebuilt and then conquered and rebuilt, conquered and rebuilt, and now you have what archaeologists describe as a tell. A hill upon which the further you dig, the the number of civilizations that you will go back. They besieged the city of Gibeon. Now, this becomes critical because you starved people out. You surrounded them so you would not let anybody get out to send word to get help. Now, Gibeon understood the, the, the way that people would wage warfare. And before these cities came and surround, these kingdoms came and surrounded the city, he sends emissaries to Joshua, who's at Gilgal with all the people. They had then traveled back there after the after the story that we had went through on Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. They had went back to Gilgal. Now they had been sent word uh, from the people of Gibeah. And notice what he is being plead that Joshua hears: Keep your treaty with us. We are in dire need. But do you remember the story back in when, when all this Gibeonite deception happened? That the people murmured against the leaders because they had clearly made a hasty decision only to find that they were the people right over the next hill. And now the people said, let's kill them. And Joshua said, no. Now here's something that should stand out to you. You know, if you were, if you were part of the people and all of a sudden you got word from the people of Gibeah that, hey, they're fighting us. Would you want your husband and your sons to go off and defending the people you should have taken care of to begin with that your leaders were negligent in making a hasty decision? Hey, go and fulfill that treaty. You had the single prime opportunity from a human standpoint to say, you know what, we don't even have to kill them. The people in the land will kill them for us, and that's not our fault. They should have been dead anyway. Joshua doesn't respond like that. Joshua hears the word. He understands the gravity of the treaty because it was made before God, and he immediately musters the troops. 
he immediately goes before the people and says, all right, we've got to go because this is an issue of integrity. An issue of integrity that says, we are people of our word. We had made this covenant before God, and he will hold us to it, to this covenant. Now, when he did that, I think it's interesting because in the response, we notice, that we notice Joshua's response in verse number 7. It says, so Joshua went up from Gilgal, and he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. Notice the phrase, all, all, all. They're not making the same mistake at I again. Okay, they're always going to make sure they're doing what, what, what Joshua said and what God would call them. Notice this phrase uh, of Joshua in verse 8. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Now that's what I want to hear from the God of heaven if I'm, an, if I'm in the military at that point. That's what would comfort me going into battle. It's not my own strength. It's not the ingenuity of our leaders. It's not, the, it's not the way that we would fight. It's not the spears that are stronger. It's our God is with us. Christian, that same principle, no matter how hard life may be for any one of us at any significant point in time, we want to know he is with us and he will never leave us nor forsake us. And that is true for us. He's never going to leave you. He holds you in his hand. He stewards his covenants with his people well. He never goes back on his promises. He, he, even Joshua displayed this as he kept the covenants. God tells him, don't fear because my presence is with you. And even more so, I will fight for you. And just as he has experienced in the past, Joshua musters the troops as he had done before at Jericho, as he had done before at Ai, as he would have done at Gibeah. And he now musters the troops against the southern coalition. And he says, we're going to go fight. They kissed their families goodbye. They immediately hurried to the area of Gibeon. Now notice this, I just gave you an aerial perspective behind me just so that you can begin to understand. You see that Joshua immediately leaves. Now, just understand a time frame. If you've got hundreds of thousands of troops, you don't just call people into action in a moment's notice. It takes a little bit of time in order for everyone to get together, but the process begins to start moving. Joshua would have to call in his leaders. His leaders begin to start dispensing the information. He calls to the people of war. He sends word to the families. Tell them, we've got to go, and we've got to go now. We've got to keep this to Gibeah. They could have gone up and the, the pass of Jerusalem. What I want you to know is about this, this yellow line is this is not easy terrain. From Jericho to Jerusalem is a, quite a hefty climb. There's, there's rocks, there's wilderness, Here's the part of the Judean wilderness. This is the part of the story where the Good Samaritan happens. They could have went through and, and went through to Jerusalem, but they didn't. They had to get to Gibeah as fast as possible. And so they went through the mountainous regions, climbing, and you begin to wonder, hundreds of thousands of troops snaking their way. Now I show you this because in the later text, it says that when they came upon Gibeah, it's almost if they came upon them suddenly. This was not the normal route people would take. You know, like if people were thinking, which way am I going to travel? I want the easiest travel. I want the lowest lands. I've got people to work, uh, people to bring along. But this army was hightailing it through the hill country, 
to get to Gibeah as fast as possible. In fact, he marched all night. What that tells me is somehow the word came to Joshua at some portion during the day. He gets all the troops mustered, and they know that this trek is in front of them. And so they march all night. There's nothing going on, and they come to the area of Gibeah, and they see the city being besieged. And they come, and, and this is where they remember, and this is where Joshua and the, and the leaders would remember, wait a minute, God will fight for us. It's important to keep our integrity. Now notice God's response of miraculous activity in, verse, uh, in, verses, in, in verses starting in verse 10. Well, notice in verse 9, so Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal, and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Azekah and Machadah. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. Now just pause for a moment, just so that you recognize this. In verse 10, uh, a lot of people will use this phrase, well, they went up to Beth Horon, and then they went down from Beth Horon. Like, they either going up or down, choose one. And people will say, well, look, I mean, look, even in the geographical perspective, there's a contradiction even in the way of the conquest. So I don't know if you can trust the Bible. Well, what archaeology has uncovered is that the city of Beth Horon had an upper Beth Horon and a lower Beth Horon. You had to go up to Beth Horon in order to get around in Beth Horon and then go down the ascent of Beth Horon in order to get to the valleys to run away. This is not a contradiction in the Bible, just an understanding of the geographical nature and the landscape that God chose to set all of these things in motion. Now, what you're going to notice in the component of all uh, of what you experience in the land of the conquest, in the, in the time period even when they were in Egypt. And I still believe that this is a major challenge for people today. Our God is a miracle-working God. Right? You believe that, I hope. Because your salvation is a miracle. The Bible you hold in your hand is a miracle. Now, I understand we use that in a lot of loose ways. But in a sense of miraculous, our, our earth and the people of the earth have always been at odds with a God who can do the miraculous. And when you live in a culture that is humanistic in nature, they're always trying to figure out how to dissuade people that God is not miraculous. Because if the miraculous exists then the Bible could be true. But if the miraculous does not exist, then you have nothing of a miraculous nature recorded to believe in, then we're left for ourselves and all of our scientific methods and all of the things that we see, feel, taste, touch, that's all we got. Let me tell you, I'm thankful that's not all we have. We serve a God of the miraculous. So it shouldn't, it shouldn't baffle us a bit when we get to the Bible and then we say, okay, well, what about Jonah? I mean, he's swallowed by a big fish. God does the miraculous. That is the way God always worked. I don't think it was a normal thing for the waters of the Jordan to dry up so people can walk across. 
I don't think it was a normal thing for the, for the, for the Nile River to turn to blood. God is a God of the miraculous. One of the individuals in history, uh, C.S. Lewis, which you perhaps are often familiar with, who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. I remember sitting down and reading these stories to my children as they were little and how the, how the wardrobe came into being, watching their little eyes go, oh. C.S. Lewis lived in a time that was constantly attacking him because of his position on the miraculous. Notice the 1947 Time magazine with his picture on it that basically declares in the headlines, C.S. Lewis, his heresy, Christianity. You know why they believed it was heretical? It's because Christianity, according to C.S. Lewis, was a religion that believed in the miraculous. No educated, sophisticated individual could ever believe in the miraculous. That's just foolishness. And they caricatured this individual over time as an individual who is heretical. They write in this article, and uh, listen to what they say. It says, this Lewis, he says, as one of the growing band of heretics among modern intellectuals, an, an intellectual who believes in God... Not a mild and vague belief, for he accepts all the articles of the Christian faith. One of these articles was the belief in miracles. It says the emergence of public intellectuals such as C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien, and others was in clear contrast to many of his colleagues at Oxford University, as well as intellectuals throughout Europe of his day who were securely convinced of a naturalistic worldview that ruled out the possibility of miracles. Oh, young people and parents, it is paramount that you take your children to Genesis chapter 1, where it says, in the beginning, the earth was void, and there was a God, and a Spirit of God who hovered over the face of the waters, and God himself, by miraculous nature, spoke all things into existence. That is the same God that we serve. They have to have their minds calibrated on a biblical, a Bible-centered worldview that leaves, then understands that we have a God of the miraculous. There is hope in the reality that God works all things together in these kinds of ways. C.S. Lewis, out of this particular criticism, writes a book which I would definitely commend to you. He writes a book. Many people don't realize he wrote other books other than the Chronicles of Narnia, but he was a prolific writer. He wrote a book entitled Miracles as a Result of the Criticism in which he defines a miracle as an inter- Interference with nature by supernatural power. Now, he knew what he was doing amongst the intellectual community. He was taking aim at their, their, their naturalistic worldview to say, God doesn't exist. We don't, have a, we don't have a God of the miraculous. You just have no one. And C.S. Lewis Define this. This is so critical for us to understand. Miracles are an interference, an intervention inside or outside the bounds of nature. Because that's what we're going to see in the battle of the long day. 
And I think, you know, I love, uh, many of you are familiar with Doug Bookman when he was here, and I always remember him impressing upon my heart this reality of a miracle has lost its, its potency in reality because he would say to us, and I remember the first time he said it to me, he was like, everybody says, oh, it's a miracle. Oh, that's a miracle. Like, oh, I just missed this car. They, braked it. they, they were braking in front of me, and I missed him by an inch. What a miracle. If your car levitated, that's a miracle. See, God in his sovereignty, most, many times of what we understand is God's providential sovereign hand. Miracles are that which he intervenes outside of nature, outside the normalcy of his design plan to allow something to occur that could otherwise not occur in natural order. That's why he's God. It's because he can do things like that that no human being can do. That's why we have so much respect for his power, because if we have a God who created all things and us, he can use us how he wills, and he can do with the earth what he wills, because he owns it all. Now, as we think about this reality, the God of Israel, who is a miraculous God, the same people who came out of Egypt, whose children are now being protected by the same miracle-working, powerful God, are now ex experiencing firsthand that God would fight for them in, in those miracles. Notice in Joshua chapter in 10, verse 10, they come upon them and God throws them into a panic, or is the word for confusion. Now, God does this a number of different ways, and there's texts of Scripture that talk about it in the essence that God all of a sudden creates a thunderous perspective that all of a sudden they realize something is different here. They throw them into panic, and they begin to realize God has come, and the people of his people are fighting for Gibeah. Well, immediately, they start to try to hightail it out of there, and they work through this, this component. Now I give you another particular map and I think it's helpful for us to realize that all the, from east to west, okay, you don't just walk into the promised land and, and realize that every particular area is like this smooth traveling. You love being on the coast, you get the Mediterranean Sea, but the further you go in towards Jerusalem, you've got, the, you've got the coast, you've got the low country, you've got the hill country, and then you've got this huge dip down into the Negev, which is this greatest, uh, you know, lowest, or lowest part on the face of the planet, which is where Jericho was. They're running in the midst of these valleys trying to escape the people of Israel. God brought them into confusion much in the same way that we would understand what happened uh, in, in all these other stories. They're running. They're running away from who? Not just the people of Israel. They're running from God. See, this is why I want you to understand the conquest is not a story about the people of Israel alone. It's about the God who works miracles in the life of the people of Israel. The story is not about Joshua. It's about God who enables Joshua to lead well but as a God who fights on their behalf in miraculous nature. He throws them into a panic in verse, in verse 10. They chase them by Beth Horon, the upper parts and the lower parts. Azekah is a town that sat on top of a hill and overlooked the Elah Valley where David and Goliath were. In that Elah Valley is where you would see these components. And they're running as fast as they possibly could. And the people of Israel thinking, they are getting away now. Were they getting away from God? No. God says, watch this. Notice in verse 11. 
And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. I mean, this is astounding. Here you have a God who intervenes and calls down hailstones, and get this, you have no mention or record whatsoever of any one of those hailstones ever hitting one of God's people or God's warriors of the people of Israel. He waits until they're all there on the ascent of Beth Horon, and then he, whatever he does in heaven, all right, cue the hailstones, and the, and the angels in heaven perhaps are chucking these things down, Could you imagine, perhaps you have been in this, look at this amount of destruction that can happen of hailstones. I mean, here in a sense you think, well, maybe you could dodge a few. You're not dodging the hailstones from heaven that will rip you apart and can tear a car and and a whole entire house and go through them. Could you imagine being hit by them? And then the text says that more were killed with the hailstones than of any, any warrior of Israel at all. What does that show you about God? God says, I don't even need your help. Like, I'll just take care of them myself. And he throws down hailstones and he destroys each and every one of them. And that's what he says in Joshua chapter 10. He says, and you'll notice this, that text, there were more who died on the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. It's deliberate in the history to get your attention to go, it wasn't the people. It wasn't the people, it was God. He did this. Now here is the lessons that we begin to learn from this. Notice in verse 12. He said that the time Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, he said in the sight of Israel, sun, stand still at Gibeon, and, the, and moon in the valley of Aeolon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nations took vengeance on their enemies. Now why would God do such a miraculous thing? He did it to show how powerful he was. He did it to show them how he would fight for them. He can do the miraculous and work and intervene in the side of, uh, outside of nature to do things nobody else could do. Now, if you look in the commentaries on various degrees, there's a lot of interpretation and the three major interpretations of what's going on here with the whole sun standing still. Well, one, the traditional perspective is he actually intervened in nature. Outside of nature, he, he caused the earth in some level to do what it's not naturally supposed to do. I mean, the earth isn't supposed to stop rotating, is it? I mean, you hear all these scientific perspectives that say, if the earth would not do what is normally intended to do, the gravity shift and everything that would, that would lay itself in chaos as a result, could, it would just be terrible. And yet God has the ability, and this is view number one, he has the ability to even stop components outside of nature, even the earth on its access, to give his people time to do what he's called them to do. That, by nature, is a miraculous God. There's another view that tries to view it in some sense. uh, I would describe it more of a naturalistic perspective. Well, somehow God 
Now, it could be no less miraculous, but we have different parts of our world. If you've ever been to Alaska or other parts of Europe, you'll see light that lasts for a whole lot longer during the day. That somehow God allowed a refraction of light in order to shine on that particular area in order that they would have a little bit longer of a day. Then we can get outside that whole miraculous business and say God didn't necessarily have to do the miraculous, but he allowed for a longer day, and here's how it works. So we don't have to have a miraculous God. I would venture you away from that view. Now the third one was, well, it's just kind of poetic. It's like historical poetry. It was like, this is just a way to describe in history as the people of Israel uh, began to understand what the conquest was about, that this was just a really long day. It was a long day of battle, and they did in one day what it seemed like could only be done in two. And so we just understand it on a figurative basis. Now, believer, let me tell you something as you study the Bible. The Bible is intended to be taken literally. Unless it's otherwise clear that there, there are figurative components. I don't think what he's doing here is trying to help us figuratively understand like, Whew, that was just a long day. That's how I describe it. No, I think what he's trying to do is help us understand God is at work here. He is far above you. Now, why would I say that? I would lean more towards view number one, and here's why. Notice this in, in the latter part of verse 13. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? We'll come back to that in a moment. The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord headed the, uh, heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. Now, this has to be something miraculous because the history records the reality that nothing like this had ever taken place in the past or in the future, in later on in the future history. This was a day in which all of a sudden marked a very miraculous moment in the life of people of Israel. Why did God allow and do miracles in this fashion? To validate what he said he would do. Miracles are always about the validation of the message of the messenger. Joshua said, he came to Joshua, I'll fight for you. It's like these weren't just words to God. They were words that were backed up by the miraculous and action. A whole day, this was something that was miraculous. So I would challenge you this morning, we don't have to succumb to some sense of naturalistic worldview when we come to the Bible and say, we've got to reinterpret this to fit our naturalism. No, you come to the Bible with the presupposition, even before you read it, that you have a God of the miraculous, and that's how you read Genesis to Revelation. And you expect to find miraculous things because he is a God filled with power and majesty like no other. Well, why does he do this? Well, he does this for us so that as we learn these lessons, we learn lessons to remember such as God is going to keep his promises and he will intervene outside of creation to do what he said he's going to do. Believer, that is a God worthy of your trust. That is a God who you can go to in your prayers and say, God, I need your help. 
I need you to intervene on my behalf. And you offer this in prayer according to God's will, and you let God be God. And you sit back and you say, God, I trust you. Because he is a God who works miracles and is trustworthy. It also tells me something like this, that God's ways are far higher than our ways. I don't think that day, could you imagine the story those soldiers came back to Gilgal with? to their families, you would not believe what your God did for our people. He was throwing hailstones the size of my head at people. Could you imagine the stories that were told? Now, he wasn't doing it just for them to tell a story. He was doing that to give them an understanding that this is the God that we serve. Trust in him. Obey him. Don't move from the right or to the left. He demands your obedience. He demands it from us. I love understanding this perspective of God's power. I think it's spoken of in the author in, as he writes the book of Job. Just listen to these words that Job writes. He stretches out, he being God, he stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the waters in his thick clouds and the cloud is not split open under them. He covers the face of the full moon and spreads over it his cloud. He has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. By his power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. By his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him? But the thunder of his power, who can understand him? This is your God who is so far above you, so far above me, that looks down on the corridors of time and knows that we need a savior, Jesus Christ, to be saved. Who thunders in his power so that we could realize this God is not a God of laxity in the culture, but is a God of righteousness who will bring righteousness to path. We can remember that this powerful God is worth, worth trusting. He is a God of miracles. We can also remember this, that even in the midst of a hasty decision, as it started in this story from the leaders to Gibeah, that just because you make a poor decision to begin with, doesn't mean you have to make subsequent, other subsequent poor decisions. You and I can learn from the choices that we make and make course corrections through repentance and confession. And God is gracious to receive our confession and reinstate us. You notice, God didn't say, well, yeah, you know, Joshua, you remember that whole Gibeon debacle that you kind of ran ahead of me? Well, I'm not fighting for you now. No, he doesn't do that. He says, I'm going to come to your aid. I, I'm going to let you change and grow all throughout the course of your life. Believer, He's merciful. He's not just powerful, but his power is mitigated by grace and mercy. And his righteousness will be seen all throughout the universe at some point. This God who controls the sun and the moon is still powerful enough to protect us, our families, our children, our ministries, our churches. God is still bringing about the things that he wants to come to pass, even here in our Western culture. 
We must trust him. Learn from your mistakes. Joshua fights this battle. The king's you can read to the end of the, 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 the uh, portion in verse 28. The kings flee into the cave. Joshua allows his men to come out. Eventually they bring, and Joshua said, stand on their necks. And this is just a way to describe them all there. And they put their feet on their necks, and they drove them through with the spear to, to conquer their enemies because God fought for them. This God is a God of truth and a God of love. He promises in Joshua chapter 10, verse 25, he says this. It says, And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies whom you fight. In verse 27, he says, But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees, and they threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves, and they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, uh, which remained there to this day. All of these remain there to this day passages are there for the historical Israel to say when they walked by that cave, they would remember how God fought for them. When the armies of Israel were finished and the battle of the long day was over and the sun had finally set, they were able to go home proclaiming the works of the powerful, miraculous God of heaven who fought for them. And I close with this in Psalm 147, verse 4 and 5. He, God, determines the numbers of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Believers never lose sight of this all-powerful, miraculous God because the moment you believe that he is not sovereignly working in your life and in the world at large, we begin to set our eyes on the things of the world and think that those are where the answers can be found, and they're not. Trust in him. His understanding is beyond measure, and he's going to work all things for, together for good to those who love him. And that's us, and we can trust him today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for a story like this that records the power of the living God there's just not a God who speaks and says, I'll keep promises, but a God who acts out of love and justice. Lord, we need to continue to trust in you because you deserve that as this all-powerful, sovereign ruler of the universe. Lord, continue to impress on our hearts the wonder-working power of God. In your name we pray, amen.